0: All right, we now come to our time of teaching, and I just want to just share before we go to the text, um, remember, when, you, when we hear the word taught, preached, this is God's heralded word for you, for each of us. God has something, right, and for, and for all of us at the same time as the, as the body of Christ. So, you know, as we, as we hear once again another teaching today, um, receive that. And go, what what does God have for me here? What is he quickening in me? What is he refining in me? What is he strengthening, encouraging in me? He has has something by this word supernaturally for each of our souls. Amen? Well, let's stand and uh, read our scripture text tonight. Luke 20. We're now into Luke 20. We're getting close to... When Christ is going to face uh, his accusers uh, for the final time, really, on earth. And so we are getting close to this day, uh, which we will get to later in Luke. But Luke 20, starting in verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes, that very Sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Amen. You may be seated, and let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you tonight, and we remember your kingship, your kingship over all, and we ask that you would quicken in us, that you would illuminate. By the Holy Spirit, our reception to this word. Teach us now, God, about your kingship in our lives, over our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is actually a very unique parable. And uh, although the scripture actually calls it a parable, it might seem to us actually more like an illustration Because it turned out to be a pretty accurate description of what had happened and what was going to happen in the days and weeks to come. Now also, we see in this parable something unique. Jesus is speaking directly to the people that he's talking about in the parable. And we see that those who he's speaking about in the parable know that he's talking to them and about them. So it's kind of it's got to be an awkward situation. But really what's most amazing in this parable is that Jesus in only a way that God himself could provides an incredible concise summary of the redemptive history of Israel and uh, that describes the, the rejection of God's prophets, the rejection of the Messiah and the judgment to come. All in a few sentences. Now, as we know from our study of the book of Luke, Jesus was continually challenged by the Pharisees, wasn't he? I mean, he was was pressed by the religious leaders constantly. Every time there was any situation in public, his authority was challenged, wasn't it? His miracles were criticized. His ministry was disparaged by them. His teachings were mocked, and even his kindness was, Was ridiculed. All that Jesus did was condemned by the religious leaders of the day. But now, just days before Jesus was crucified, he brings them yet another opportunity to repent, to turn from from their condemnation of him, and to receive the Messiah that the Father had sent. Now in this parable, we see what Jesus does. He he clearly portrays and proclaims his position as the Son of God, which he had done before, but this time very directly. He declares his authority given by his Father to go and do the redemptive work he does. And lastly, he ends with a warning to those that are going to reject him. So let's begin by just taking a look at the narrative of the parable. It's it's fairly self-explanatory, but it's good to talk through so that we understand uh, all of the the pictures uh, of this parable. So we have a man, an owner, he's called, he plants a vineyard. And he leased it out, we could say, or he gave, gave some measure of it, some care and ownership of it, to some vine dressers. These were workers that would that were to care for it, to care for the harvest, to care for uh, this, this vineyard. And then he sent a servant of his to go and retrieve some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers did not give the servant some fruit, but instead they beat him and sent him away. Why would they do that? Well... Maybe because they didn't want to share some of the fruit of the vineyard. Maybe they wanted it all for themselves. But this was particularly cruel because the servant came on behalf of who? The owner. He, he was sort of like the, you, you know, he was sent on behalf of the owner. He was there uh, sent to, to do the owner's work, to just get something for the owner. But the vine dressers didn't care. They didn't care. And then we see the owner sent two more servants. And each time, the vine dressers beat those servants and cast them out. Very dishonoring to the owner. But then, the owner decides to up the ante a little bit and to send his own son. He says his beloved son, perhaps his only son. And he thought, surely... They will respect him. But the vine dressers, when they saw that it was the owner's son, uh, they thought perhaps, why would he be sending his son? Oh, the owner must have died. The owner must have died, so now his son is coming as perhaps the new owner. So you know what we'll do? We have an opportunity here to take the inheritance, to take ownership of the land and the vineyard themselves, and so they plotted that they would kill the son to get the inheritance, and in fact, they did that. And we see this parable end with Jesus asking, well, what will the owner do with these vine dressers who killed his son? Now, we see in this parable a few different elements, and it might be clear to you now, but let's just go through who each of the characters are in, uh, in, this, uh, in this parable itself. So first we have the vineyard. What does the vineyard represent? What do you think? What's that? Israel. Israel. That's right, Israel. God's people, God's church, we could say today, God's nation. The owner of the vineyard. Who, Who does the owner represent? God. Yeah, God the Father. That's right. The vine dressers are, well, the religious leaders of the day. They are the clergy, we could say, of the day, to use a more modern term, who were what? They were appointed by God and entrusted to care for this vineyard, for God's people. Entrusted to care, to love, to manage, to, to oversee, to tend to. have to gently, carefully tend to a vineyard. And the servants who were the servants that the owner sent? Well, they were the prophets that God had sent through time, time and time and time again. Maybe all the way back from who's considered to be the first prophet, Enoch, all the way to John the Baptist. Of course, Jesus himself is the son, the beloved son who the owner sent is Jesus, the son of God. So we learn a few lessons in this parable, and which will soon really become, like I said, reality that will be carried out. First of all, we see the vine dressers who, as we said, are representing the religious leaders of Israel this time. They they beat and cast out, it says, the servants of the owner that God had sent. And it depicts how the religious leaders of the day had rejected the prophets of God who called them foremost but really the whole nation to repentance and and this is clear the the pharisees and the teachers of the law the scribes the 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 leaders the leadership of the people of Israel were all denying the messianic prophecies and really the gospel of faith of truth that all those prophets had sent and it, it almost seems to us in the parable, redundant. He sent a servant, beaten, and cast out. He sent another servant, beat and cast out. He sent another servant, beat and cast out. And this is, but this is what happened. This is what the religious leaders were doing. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And they said, no, no, no. We have our way. But they, and it was so clear to them. The religious leaders were having to probably really work hard to deny the clarity by which God brought, particularly his son. They could see it, right? Just some simple, very, uh, very objective things, right? Uh, born in Bethlehem, check. <laughs> From Nazareth, check. I mean, you could just, you could take the facts. Of course, all the way to John the Baptist, who they condemned and cast out. And it's, it's interesting that we see in this God's patience, don't we? God is gracious to us, amen? God keeps sending over another servant, another servant. Maybe this time they'll receive my servant. Maybe this prophet they'll listen to. Maybe this prophet they'll listen to. Maybe this prophet they'll listen to. And we know this, God is merciful, isn't he? He's gracious again and again and again and again in our lives. He's patient with us. Brother, you prayed for our nation. He is exceedingly patient with our nation right now. You know, some of us go, it's time, time, God, for some judgment here. It would be helpful. (laughs) You know? But he's patient. He's a gracious God. But eventually, the owner sent Maybe all the servants he had, they you know, beat and sent all his servants away, so he had to send his son. It's sort of his final act, right? He had to get some of the fruit of his vineyard. I mean, at the very least, perhaps, had to, it's his, it was their way of checking on it. You know, how's this in, sort of this investment doing? I mean, send somebody over there to check it out. But really, the son was what? It's the most significant representative of himself he could send. Who else could he send but himself? His own flesh and blood. And so we, we I think, can all understand the gravity of what happened here, can't we? Right? It's certainly one thing when you send a servant or a friend or an employee. And, and perhaps that acquaintance is harmed or mistreated in relation to something that's your responsibility. But when a family member is sent particularly your child is sent and mistreated and in this case killed, oh, the stakes are much higher, aren't they? Much, much higher. Because not only is dishonor brought, but the personal nature of the act extends beyond hurt, but to the relationship of the family member. You hurt my friend. You know, that's one thing, and that's, that's very hard when our friends are hurt. But you hurt my son? That's a whole other thing. A com- it's going to garner a completely different response. And sure enough, it does. Well, secondly, we also see through the telling of this parable, Jesus makes it clear that he is the son. He's the son in the parable. He's the son of God. He was proclaiming his divinity. That he was the one sent by the Father, by the owner of the vineyard, to God's people and its leaders. And in this, he declared himself not only the Son, but the Messiah, the Savior. This is a very strong, powerful, clear statement by Jesus that likely further enraged the religious leaders. And thirdly, we see that judgment is portrayed in this parable the son had been sent and we see the picture of God giving really the last opportunity for these vine dressers to to respond to respond to the owner and so in the same way Christ came Christ was sent as this last opportunity for repentance before he issues the judgment upon those leaders of the day this is really validated to us here we see in verses 15 and 16 so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do to him he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others and when they heard it they said certainly not i mean kind of in shock but the time had come. I mean, judgment was at the door. The prophets were sent by God over and over and over again, and with much patience, providing opportunities for repentance, the prophets were rejected. And now the Son, the final opportunity, the clearest voice of truth to repent and turn to God. He was not only beaten and cast out, but killed for selfish gain. So. The vine dressers executed their plot to kill the son to gain the inheritance for themselves. And of course, Jesus in the parable issues and declares the judgment to come. Now, this actually harkens back to Jesus' words in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, verse 47. They were seeking to destroy the final one who sent God, but it wasn't just another prophet. Or the word of God that we see, the prophecies come by, but it was the very beloved Son of God, so the stakes were much higher. After the telling, telling the parable, the parable is now done. Jesus will now speak directly to the people who are listening, regarding the judgment that he said would come. Let's look at verse seventeen. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, this is directly from Psalm 118, which we sang. Speaking of Jesus... Right? rejected by the leaders of Israel, who were, in that case, like the builders. Right? The, right? It says the stone which the builders rejected. So the builders are, again, a reference to the, the leaders of God's people at that time, the, the, the clergy, who were made by God into the chief cornerstone upon which his people are built. So this one stone, as it were, became the chief cornerstone. Now, Psalm 118 actually goes on to say, it was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It was the Lord's doing. And this act was obviously amazing and really beyond anything man could do. It was truly only the Lord's doing. The stone, which was rejected, has become the chief Cornerstone. Children, do you know what a cornerstone is? Cornerstone. Ever heard that? Cornerstone. Well, when a building is built, one of the first things that is done in building that building, as we know, is the foundation. It's very, very important. We've talked about that before. But the first stone in the foundation, in, in, in perhaps the strongest corner of the building, would be the cornerstone. And this stone is sort of the principal stone by which the rest of the building was built. How it was positioned would determine the direction of the walls, the angle of the walls, how it would sit. Everything was built off of that stone, from that stone outward. So it's so foundational, so critical. Typically sometimes the biggest stone of the foundation as well, the weightiest, the most powerful And and the other other description that you might find, they'd also sometimes put another type of cornerstone in the top corner of the building. And that was important because it would sort of hold everything together. So you can see these pictures of Christ. He, He is that completion. He is that foundation. He is that holding it together, as it were, this beautiful gospel of God Going forth, set in place by the Father. Now we see this actually referenced in a few other places in Scripture. Peter uses uh, the picture of a cornerstone when he's actually addressing the Sanhedrin's in Acts in Acts four. And he's talking to the Sanhedrin. You might remember in Acts 4 8, he says, it says, when Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers! of the people and elders of Israel. He's talking to the the leaders again. If this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be made known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. He changed it. He said, by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there any salvation under, for there is no name under heaven given among men, by which men may be saved. So Peter, declaring Christ as the chief cornerstone, is also declaring what? the exclusivity of the gospel, really that there's only one way to truth. There's only one path, if you will, which is so maligned in our day, isn't it? So many, so many ways to God. No. There's a declaration here that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Only one, and that is Christ. Christ. We see this picture of Christ also in Ephesians 2.20. Let me just back up to verse 19. Again, Ephesians 2.20. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Right? Foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a holy dwelling place for God and the Spirit. So now we, we get a, a full picture, don't we? We see this building that God is bringing together with Jesus as the essential foundational chief cornerstone. And of course, it's connected to the church, the whole body that is being built out together for the Spirit of God. Truly amazing. It's like in telling this parable, Jesus is telling the people, listening, God is building his church, and I am the chief cornerstone. You are the bricks of it, that God is bringing together, bringing together this holy temple of the Lord, the church of God. Also in 1 Peter 2, he relates the same picture, adding, adding really to the element of God's judgment here against those who will not believe in Christ is the Messiah. First Peter 2, starting in verse 4, it says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there it is. We are the living stone. But he goes on to say, therefore it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. When there is a stumbling, when there's a disobedience to the word of God, when there is a rejection of the one that God himself sent to whom the leaders were, were, were not just appointed to receive themselves, but to receive the Messiah and then care for and instruct the people of God that, and proclaim this is the Messiah. But they rejected them all. So it was indeed the leaders of Israel who stumbled here. They were appointed to bring the word of God, to administer the word, to teach the word, to proclaim the coming Messiah. But they themselves, the leaders, were disobedient to it. And so they stumbled. It's it's described in Peter. They stumbled. Their lack of belief in Christ as the Messiah, which we see there in verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's a reference to Isaiah 8, as we read earlier. What a picture for us, isn't it? Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, and on whomever it falls will grind him to powder. Really speaking of the unstoppable power of Christ's coming kingdom. Nothing is going to stop this. Christ's kingdom is coming. If you reject Christ or stumble over him in unbelief, fine, his kingdom is coming and it will just steamroll over you. Basically what it's saying. And this is what happened, isn't it? God's judgment against those religious religious leaders not long after all came to fruition. Now all of this is wrapped up in the picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus, as we said. So in the parable, right, the son is killed, he's cast out. But Psalm 118, as we said, it it says that this son came in the name of the Lord. He came to do the business of the Father, just like in the parable, right? The son was sent by the owner, the Father, to do his business. And this is what Jesus did. He's the one who came in the name of the Lord. The son came with authority from God the Father to do his work. And that's really the principal message for us tonight. God's son, with with the authority to act, enact God's redemptive work, was sent to God's people, but they rejected him, which meant rejecting God, rejecting God's salvation, and receiving eternal judgment. So this is quite a condemnation. This this parable on the leaders of Israel. This would this would have been a great time for them to repent, right? This would have been a great time for them to trust in the Messiah that God had sent. Jesus told them clearly who he was. He told them clearly the danger they were in. And they, they, he told them how to trust in him from the truth of God's word. But they did not. Now lastly, we see the response in verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes at that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But what? They feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. You know, the religious leaders were, were frankly, just scaredy cats, is what they were. They were so afraid. They were so faithless. And their unbelief, notice, was not just in Jesus. They were faithless in their own agenda. They couldn't even carry out, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't even have faith to carry out their own agenda. They were such man-pleasers. They were so afraid of the people. I mean, they wanted to kill Jesus. But they were so striving to be politically correct or liked by men men, that they couldn't even do that. They could do nothing. Jesus had rendered them already steamrolled by his coming kingdom, effectively. So what do they do? We know that they basically go and hire Judas to go catch Jesus because they were too scared to. It's just so cowardly. It's so faithless. And it really aligned with their hypocrisy, right? They were man-pleasers to the core. That's what they were all about. So this parable is is obviously, as I mentioned, a very unique one uh, because Jesus is just really describing what's going to happen what has happened and what's going to. But let's apply it to us today, just in closing here. First of all, let us not cast out the prophets that God has sent, amen? Which for us is is the word of God, right? He's given us all things in this for life and godliness. The the, the, the word of God, the, the power of God unto salvation. And We need the word of God, we know that, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit within us to pursue personal holiness. So in our daily devotion to our God, as we talked about this morning, clinging to the truth so tightly that nothing else can invade. And secondly, let's remember what the heart of God was in this parable. Do you remember what the owner said? Remember when the owner sent his son he said, they will respect him when they see him. Speaking of Jesus. And so that's, that's for us, right? God expects that we will receive and worship his son. His son who was sent to, and died for our sakes that we might be saved. That we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. And so it's a good reminder for each of us to consider, do we reverence Christ? Do we bow to his authority in all areas of our life? Do we truly make him king of kings to rule everything in our world? Or are there other kings and idols that are competing to rule over parts of your life? Are there some areas in your life that you freely welcome the kingship of Christ and other areas of your life that you're a little reticent to allow that to be ruled by King Jesus. What areas of your life need to be given to Christ to allow him to lead and rule and guide completely by his truth? The kingship of Christ in your life, in your family, in your use of time, in your use of money, in your forgiveness of others, in your trust, in your casting off fear, the kingship of Christ in your generosity, in your compassion, the kingship of Christ in what you eat, in how you drive. It's to be comprehensive. Do we revere Christ? And have we made him our king in every area of life? Well, we do know one thing. As his children, we can rejoice that Jesus is our king. Amen. And may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, knowing that we are saved by him, that our king is above all other kings. And as we read in Psalm 2, he does triumph. He is ruling and reigning. His kingdom has come and is here and is pressing forward. And we're part of it. Praise be to God. We can and we do live by him and for him. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we are part of this eternal, powerful kingdom. May we be engaged in it with confident faith, with broken humility and poverty over our sin but in triumphant joy as we watch and anticipate and participate in the conquering kingdom of our God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, we proclaim you over all, over all principalities and powers, over all of creation, over all that was made and will be made, over all of eternity, past, present, and future. You are the almighty King. O God, help us now. Quicken with us now if we are withholding any part of our life from your kingship. Oh God, give us faith that we may give this to you, that you would rule and lead and be our sovereign Lord comprehensively. We praise you, our King and our God. In his name we pray, amen.